0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Okay, good morning out there. You braved the cold to get here. Good job. Hey, how many of you... Go back to your high school days. How many of you did not like your history class in high school? Let's see a show of hands. All right, there's quite a few. Despite all the hands that are raised, we are passionate about our past. And how do I know that? Because of the explosion of interest in one's ancestry. One of the bigger news stories this week featured the releasing of Elizabeth Warren's DNA test. (laughs) Now, her Native American ancestry has been debated, so she offered up a DNA sample to prove that that lineage existed. Unfortunately for her, it backfired as the trace was so small that it was deemed insignificant by actual living native americans now with the advent of dna testing everybody is interested in their past there's even a tv show uh, called who do you think you are this show follows celebrities to churches and libraries and cemeteries and to their ancestral hometowns to learn about his or her ancestors another website i found listed eight Must watch genealogy TV shows. So Put that in your queue, okay? (laughs) Why so much passion about our past? Because our past tells us who we are. As we live in a more mobile society, as people are more disconnected from their families, as community pools have been bulldozed over to make room for strip malls, we've lost a sense of place. We've lost a sense of rootedness. And on top of that, the everywhereness that's a word I made up, yes, the everywhereness of digital media literally alters our brains to live in and live for the present moment. Now with all these cultural factors, Is it any wonder people feel disconnected from their past and long, or they feel divorced from their past, and long to connect to it, to understand it, to reconcile it to the present? The search for our past is a search for our identity. Now, let me just give you a little bit more evidence of this desperate search. It's the incredible growth of, it's evidenced, in the incredible growth of body art. Tattoos. Let me explain. Tattoos have skyrocketed in the last 20 years, especially among millennials. So this intrigued a professor at the University of Arkansas. She is a professor who studies the relationship between consumer behavior and popular culture. So she did her study, the first study in 1998, and. Because of postmodernism, she was expecting people to be lost in their identities. However, what she found is that people did know who they were, and they used tattoos to cement aspects of their current selves. But in a second study, just eight years later, something had changed. The professor argued that, in general, she said that you know people now more than ever are able to recreate, identities very easily, both online and in real life. So the second study, like the first, found that people use tattoos as a means to express their past and present selves. But the people interviewed in the second group also seemed to need proof that their identities existed at all. And they relied on tattoos as a way to establish some understanding of who they actually were. The co-author of the study said this, We continue to be struck by rapid and unpredictable change. The result is a loss of personal anchors needed for identity. And tattoos, we found that tattoos provide this anchor their popular arm reflects a need for stability for permanence and for predictability it's very interesting isn't it i believe that reconciliation to our past is a part of establishing a secure identity and in this passage this morning in galatians we discover how the gospel does exactly that how the gospel reconciles us to our past. Will you stand? And I'm going to read this morning's passage. If you want to follow along in Galatians chapter 3, it is page 973 in your pew Bible. I'm going to begin at verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe now before faith came we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for in christ jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, Christ have, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, in, uh, we come before you this morning and ask you that you would help us to understand this confusing passage and to help us to see, Father, this morning, how the gospel brings to us an identity and a security a sense of who we are and a sense of our past that is liberating, that is freeing, that is healing, that will help us to grow and mature as people and as followers of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to have hearts to listen and not just to listen but to accept and to believe what you say this morning through these words. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. I suspect that as I read that passage, you thought, wow, this is pretty confusing. Not quite sure what this is really getting at. Not quite sure how this is relevant. And you're probably wondering, not quite sure how this at all addresses my past. So let me take some time and just slowly unpack this passage so that we can really understand it and appreciate it. If you're new this morning, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. We take a passage from the Bible, try to understand what it meant to the people that uh, received it in that era, and then try to make sense of then, therefore, what it means today. We believe the Bible to be God's word uh, to us, and uh, it's reliable, and we can trust in it, and uh, so that's that guides us in what we do on Sunday morning. So let's begin. So the first point that Paul makes here is that The promise came first. The promise came first. We've been describing here in this book of Galatians how there was this group of false teachers that infiltrated the church. They were called Judaizers. And they argued that the way to be saved, the way to be right with God, was to believe first, then to keep the law, to perform the law. And Paul countered that argument by arguing, no. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. The way to be made right with God is not by keeping his law, but by believing his promise. Mike said last week that the word faith shows up 15 times In this chapter alone, well, equally compelling, the word promise shows up 10 times in this chapter. That's not an accident. Our faith is not faith in faith. Our faith is faith in a promise, a promise spoken by God. And the two are are connected like this, faith and promise like hands clasped together so to reinforce this point Paul says he knows his audience has an understanding of Jewish history and so he says which came first the law or the promise and he reminds his friends that the promise came first and the law came he gives the specific number 430 years later that's a long time And he argues that the law does not cancel or nullify or make void the promise. And he says even human contracts work this way. If you enter into an agreement to pay a loan uh, for a house you purchased, a mortgage, you cannot wake up one day and on your own say, I'm going to change that agreement. I'm going to stop paying my mortgage. Your mortgage company will not look kindly. On that unilateral decision. And it will eventually reclaim your home. For you have broken the agreement. Paul is saying the, law, the, the promise came first. And the law cannot change it. It cannot alter it. Now the primary example of a person. Receiving in the, uh, the promise in the Old Testament. Was Abraham. For a Jewish person. Abraham tied them to their Glorious past. He was the father of the Jews. His presence loomed large in the heart of every Jew. If Abraham entered into a relationship with God based on a promise long before the law came into play, then being right with God must be based on faith without performing the do's and don'ts of the law. Now, if we were to dive into these promises, that God gave to Abraham, we would see that to receive what God has done means receiving his promise, and it means to stop striving to establish a righteousness of our own. The law focused on our performance. Thou shalt do, thou shalt not do. The promise focuses on God's character and repeats the phrase of God saying, I will, I will. That's what the promise is based on, his character. So Paul then anticipates their question. So, all right, so if the promise comes first, well, then God, why even the law at all? Why did the law even come into existence? If if the promise is so great and sufficient for our salvation, why did you even bring the law into existence? What good is it? Paul says here, kind of in shorthand, what he goes into more detail in other of his writings. The law's purpose is to expose who we are. The law helps us recognize what we are truly like. That we are not as good as we think we are. Two weeks ago, I referred to an essay, it's brilliant, about how we tell stories to justify ourselves. Or to put ourselves in a better light. When we measure other people's behavior, okay, follow me here, When we measure other people's behavior, we tend to be critical and believe the worst, don't we? When we measure our own behavior, we're far more understanding and patient and believing. If I am driving and turn out in front of someone, I was mistaken. And I can't understand why the other person is blaring their horn at me. What an evil person that is lacking such understanding, of course, if someone turns out in front of me, it is because they are an evil person and wish to cause me great harm. Flannery O'Connor tells a story of Mrs. May and Mrs. Greenleaf, each widows, each with two sons. Mrs. May is uh, wealthier. She's more educated. She's more proper She's religious in a formal way. Mrs. Greenleaf is not very educated. She's sort of backwards. She's, um, uh, she doesn't live in a nice home, but she possesses a very simple faith. They each have two sons that they have high aspirations for. Mrs. May is constantly judging and looking down on Mrs. Greenleaf's two sons. As a matter of fact, she establishes her identity based on what she is not. As she compares her sons to the two sons of Mrs. Greenleaf. Ironically, though, the very basis by which she judges them are the very things that she and her sons are guilty of. This is the self justifying principle at work in all of our minds. Without the law, friends, we would be absolutely blind to this. We would, without the law, would never recognize our need for Jesus. The law searches my heart and my motives, and the law particularly searches my heart and motives in the call to love God and to love my neighbor as myself It shines a light on the places I prefer to keep hidden. And verse 19 says the law stayed in place until the promise was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now, friends, let me take a parenthesis here because we have to be discerning at this moment. And just stay with me as I explain this one important point. You see, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience and he expects his audience to separate in their minds, to discern in their minds, the various aspects of the law. And if we don't do that, we're going to get confused here. Some aspects of the law were fulfilled by Jesus and are no longer necessary. We've explained these, the so-called clean laws, the dietary laws, what you can wear and not wear, what you can eat and not eat, the, uh, the required sacrifices. All those were done away. All those were fulfilled by Jesus. But the call to love God with all your heart The call to love your neighbor as yourself, the law of those, Jesus himself maintained that these continue. Other aspects of the Old Testament law, the sexual ethics, the marriage covenant, uh, aiding the poor and the vulnerable, these, Jesus taught, remain as law for the people of God. Okay, do, do, do you see the difference there? The, you see the discernment? Paul understands that his audience gets this. It's important that we get it as well. It is this law, the moral law, that continues to expose our inability to keep it and thus our need for grace. Now, look at verse 19 and 20. Scholars are honestly not sure what to make of these verses. It says in verse 19, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, this is no doubt a reference to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Then verse 20, this is the compu- confusing part. It says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That's the, that's the confusing part. Here's what Paul might be getting at, is that the law required go-betweens, mediators. In this case, you actually have two degrees of separation between God and man. An angel delivered it to Moses, and then Moses actually presented it to the people. Paul may be saying that this is the nature of the law. It emphasizes separation, God's holiness, and our 100% inability to to approach God on our own merit. But as to the promise, there God spoke directly to Abraham without any intermediary. The law focuses on what we can do to meet an agreement. The promise with its accompanying grace focuses on intimacy with God. That may be the point of what he's saying. So, the law has a purpose, Paul concludes. And he uses two other pictures to describe the purpose of the law. Take a look at these. One is a prison guard, and two is a tutor or a guardian until the time of Christ. Both pictures are compelling for what they communicate. The first picture is the law imprisons us. The law restrains us. The law hems us in. The law confines us. The second picture, a guardian, literally means a tutor or a guide or a a guardian of boys. John Stott points out that the guardian was usually himself a slave. And it was typical in ancient times that this tutor was often a very cruel disciplinarian rather than a kind teacher. That image of a disciplinarian is surely more consistent with the first image of a law that imprisons. Well so what do these mean? The law expressed God's holy will, tells us what to do and not do, warns us of the punishments and rewards that come from disobedience or obedience. And because we have all equally sinned, we are all under the law's condemnation. There is nothing we can do to escape its harsh penalty. And the paradox is, is the harder we try to keep the law, the more we feel like it's impossible, right? Like a prisoner, it has shut the door behind us. Like a cruel teacher, it constantly rebukes and corrects us. I had a teacher like that for two years. First and second grade. Mrs. Carter. It was 1966 and 1967. And during this time, there was a very popular TV show featuring a goofy, funny marine named Gomer Pyle. Some of you might remember that. Remember Gomer Pyle's nemesis? His nemesis was a harsh, demanding, impatient commanding officer named Sergeant Carter. I thought the two, Sergeant Carter and my teacher, Mrs. Carter, were husband and wife. (laughs) or brother and sister. Related somehow. Because they were equally mean. She did not like me. And I, I think I can say that quite honestly. I had, shall I say some embarrassing mishaps, we'll call them that, of various sorts in her classroom that were not met with any mercy. They were embarrassing mishaps, indeed. That I could forgive, but the one I have a little bit of a harder time forgiving was when I had a real accident in second grade, one that could have taken my life, my life was uh, my folks were worried for a little while, it requ- required immediate surgery to my skull. After my hospital stay, on the first day, you know, it's just something just etched in your mind. After my hospital stay, on the first day I returned to school, I wore a winter cap to cover my absolutely bald head. Now, you remember second grade, right? You remember how insecure you are? Remember how difficult peer ridicule is in second grade? Well without any questions or pondering my insecurity, Mrs. Carter, her first words to me on my coming back to school after the accident that almost took my life was take off that hat. I'm still having trouble with that one as you can tell. (laughs) Still have a little trouble with that one in terms of forgiving. That was a that was not a great moment. The law the law is a cruel disciplinarian. Now My analogy has some limitations. Mrs. Carter was imperfect. Mrs. Carter was a sinner. The law is perfect. The law is perfect. And we have, friends, we have several choices when we feel the exposure of God's perfect law upon us. We have several choices we can make when we feel the weight of the law exposing us. And maybe our self-justifications are falling flat. We have two choices. Non-religious people, non-religious people dismiss the law by dismissing God or by finding problems with the Bible. Their problem is this. Because God made us moral beings, even non-believers set up their own law their own fair play, their own self-made morality to live by and by which to measure themselves. I don't believe in God, they claim, but I am a good person, not realizing that without God, all definitions of good are nonsense. In reality, they cannot live up to their own law, and if they don't see that, they will accuse others of breaking the very rules they themselves have set up for themselves, thus falling into the same hypocrisy and self-righteousness that religious people do. What religious people tend to do is to minimize the impact of the law or to find loopholes in it. Or they look for some legalistic way to obey it. Yes, they want to take the law seriously, but they know they cannot meet his demands, so they dumb it down so it fits, or they make loopholes. The Pharisees did this, justifying themselves. They said, well, if we avoid actual physical murder, then we have kept the law, thou shalt not murder. Then Jesus comes along and says, If you are even angry with someone and call them a fool, if you even think hateful thoughts towards someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Wait, Jesus, hold on. You can't be serious. Every person thinks hateful thoughts from time to time. Every person once in a while says, I wish that person was dead. You see, they were so locked into their self-justification that it shocked them when they heard the law's true essence. We try to do the same thing, friends. I do it. God tells you and me to share your faith with others. But we convince ourselves we can't do that. And so we reason, it's good enough if I'm just a silent witness. If I'm just a good example, then... That's enough. Or, we ask, what is the minimum I can give to the kingdom of God and still convince myself I am meeting my commitment to tithe? Or, Christian couples dating push physical boundaries saying, how far can we actually go and it not be sex? This is what we call religion. When we view our relationship with God as essentially one of minimally fulfilling the requirements, it becomes a system of seeking rewards and avoiding punishments. Law keeping may present you as a good, respectable, middle class person, it may keep you in good standing in our church, but internally, You will be enslaved because you will not have power to break out of sinful decisions and sinful habits. Religion can't do that. Why was the law given? So that we could see the truth about ourselves and see how much we need grace. In both cases, Paul points out that the law was given so that we would desire his grace. He says we were held captive until faith was revealed, and the law was our disciplinarian until we were justified by Christ. So, the last point of this section then is, is how do law and grace fit together? Here's how Tim Keller describes it Law and grace work together in Christian salvation. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they will not admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. If we think we're not all that bad, His grace will never change us. I think this is what Paul is expressing and what Paul is communicating. And now let me move to the last section. This explains the text up through about verse 24 or 25. And I want you to see now in this movement, this pivot of where Paul goes next. Okay? No longer under sin's condemnation, Believing the promise has implications related to our identity. So now let me tie together where we started this morning. Paul launches immediately into some radical new realities about you that establish your identity. It's like one day you're single and the next day you're married. Okay, it's a shift like that in our thinking. It calls for a new paradigm in the way I see myself, others and history three results of being united with christ here's the first one one in christ verse 26 we are sons and daughters of god god is no longer our judge we no longer fear him for dreading the punishment or dreading the punishment that we deserve he's no longer our tutor restraining us keeping us focused on rewards and punishments, preventing us from growing into maturity. We learn to love God with a family-like love. And by the way, I'm really drawing here, I I just so appreciated uh, John Stott and his commentary. I'm drawing deeply from his thoughts on this. As sons and daughters, we delight in the status and privilege of grown-up sons and daughters. We have inherited a glorious kingdom And now we are motivated by gratitude to love and serve God with a full heart and a whole heart and a free heart. It is our baptism into Christ that is our avenue of sonship. Baptism is a symbol of being united with Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus, baptism is an important step for you to take. Now at the same time, Paul is not saying baptism is required for salvation. That would militate against the very essence of what he's been talking about, that salvation is by faith. Faith is the means to our salvation. Baptism pictures outside of us what's taken place inside of us. Secondly, verse 28, the second new identity. We are all one. There is no distinction of race, and I talked about this extensively two weeks ago. Paul clearly shows that faith in Jesus here has immediate ethical effects. This declaration eliminates any distinction based on perceived cultural or ethnic superiority. We are all equal. In our need of salvation, we are all equal in our inability to earn it. And we are all equal in the fact that God gives his grace freely in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction in rank. No slave or free. And can you appreciate how upside down this was in ancient Rome, a society thoroughly stratified based on rank? This was was mind-blowing. There is no distinction in gender any sense of superiority gained through maleness or femaleness is taken away. Now, I think it's important to clarify here, even in light of our own culture's present-day debate, that Paul is not doing away with distinctions. Diversity is God-created, it is interesting, And it is vital to our humanity. Differences in gender, in culture, in ethnicity. Paul is not advocating here for some kind of color blindness that ignores our past and our stories. Our stories are different. Our histories are different. Our perspectives are different. But our worth before God is not. It's not different. The Bible is able to hold together diversity in culture, race, and gender without it collapsing into idolatry. Something our culture is trying to do, but is failing in. As Christians justified by faith, God calls us to oneness. And then in verse 29, the third new identity the third new reality about you. Remember, you were once single, now you're married. You were once lost, now you're found. And I'm just using that as an analogy to show that there's a, a shift that's taken place. Thirdly, in Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. And your first reaction to that might be, hmm, uh, so, well, what does that mean? Is that a, that, what, what's the big deal? with that it actually is a big deal you think abraham died four thousand years ago what's that got to do with me if you are a believer in jesus if you have been declared right with him by accepting his promise then you are tied to Abraham. You are spiritually related to him. You are his descendant. And why is that important? Because it means you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. You are a part of redemptive history. You have a place, a rootedness in something dating back nearly to the beginning of time. Stott says that you are a part of the noble historical succession of faith. You are a part of the people of God. You're not random. You're not here by chance. You are not a bundle of temporary desires who, upon death, will slip into oblivion, eventually remembered or eventually remembered by no one, and eventually loved by no one. With this new identity, you have a home. You have an anchor. You have a security. You have a secure attachment. You're attached to God. This way. You're attached and united to believers all over the world. This way. And you are attached this way to the past. You're a part of a long history. You see, the, the Jewish men and women in the church in Galatia, they may have felt they may have felt that Paul, in, in, in showing how the law was insufficient to save us, they may have felt that, Paul, you're stripping away our past. Paul, you're stripping away our identity. Everything is important to us since the law was so representative of who they were. And Paul says, no, 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 not at all. The law played an important part. The law set the foundation for your new found relationship with Jesus. You see, maybe you are divorced from your past this morning. There could be lots of reasons for that. Maybe you view your past as purely random, an accident, something you wish to forget and just do away with. Maybe your past is filled with regrets and bad memories. Maybe you feel like you were a different person in your past. There were things that you did, terrible things, evil things, that you can't today look squarely in the face. Maybe you were hurt terribly in the past. Maybe your past is gone. The people have died. The places have gone away. Your past has been eliminated. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition that was important and meaningful to you, yet it did not show you Christ. It's important for you to realize that God is not taking away all of your past. But he actually used your past, perhaps to show you the inadequacy of coming to God through some religion, some system, some law. He may have used your past religious understanding and orientation to give you a fear of himself, even if it did not show you Christ. But like the Galatians, your past can all be fulfilled and all be made complete through Christ. Whatever the cause of your disassociation with your past, whatever the cause of you feeling like you're two people, not one, the gospel can reconcile your past with the present. How does it do this? The gospel empowers you on a number of different levels. The gospel empowers you to tell the truth about the evil that you did. It gives you a power. It gives you an understanding. It gives you the grace to admit to the evil things that you did in your past that you've been unable to face. The gospel also gives you a power to face the evil that was done to you. Some of you were the victims of evil things, of terrible things. And knowing that you are loved by God and knowing that God is with you and for you gives you the courage to face the evil that's been done to you. You learn when you're justified by faith and become secure in who God is, when you begin to sink deep into your new identity, when you realize you are a part of the family of God, you can begin to receive forgiveness. You can begin the journey of receiving forgiveness, and you can receive the journey or begin the journey and make progress on the journey of giving forgiveness all of that begins to heal your past and to reconcile you with your past random events now as you see that you're a part of redemptive history there are no random events there are no random people they were all used by God in a sense and now you see clearly that they were all a part of God's tapestry to lead you to himself. They were not random. Things you wish you never saw, things you wish you never did, now become a part of your redemptive story. You might think to yourself, I feel so small, I'm like one blob in the ocean. I come from nowhere. I am nothing but can't you see you are tied to Abraham and you are part of a large, expanding, and global new humanity? That is who you are. Can't you see? That's what Paul is saying here. Your identity, your past, your present, your future has been reconciled through the gospel. The pieces of your life are brought together as one. There is nothing accident or nothing random. Here is the big idea, I believe, in this passage. If I could just summarize what Paul is saying in just a couple sentences, here is what I think he's saying. The gospel gives you an entirely new identity, community, and connection to your past. You are a child of God. You are a brother and sister in a global family, and you are part of a rich and glorious past. And my challenge to you today is to accept this, to believe it, and to revel and to glory in who you are as a son and as a daughter of God. Pray with me. Father, as we come forward for, to celebrate the, uh, your remembrances, the bread as your body, the cup representing your blood, we remember that you said on that Passover night, you told your friends, this is a new covenant. This is a new promise. And like you made a promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago, you made a promise to us that by taking your bread, the bread of your body, by drinking the wine of your blood, by taking Jesus Christ into our hearts and lives, we become sons and daughters of God. Father, again, not by the actual taking of the elements, but by faith in Jesus. Father, for the lost person this morning who has been unreconciled to their past. Father, for the person who must walk that painful journey of forgiveness. Father, for that person this morning who is in search of forgiveness for the evil that they've done. Father, I ask you this morning that as they come forward to receive the bread and the juice, that you would reconcile them to their past, that you would bring the pieces of their lives together into a single harmony, into a oneness. You pull the threads of our lives together, and then you connect us with others Father, for that lost person this morning, I pray that today would be the day they open their hearts up and say, Father, I believe the promise. I accept the promise that you love me, that your son died for me. I accept the gift of the Holy Spirit into my heart. I want to live for him.